we're human beings. Hey, hallelujah. And human beings want to connect with other human beings. And that specific need or interest or desire is not going to go away. So as much as you go into data and so on and so forth, which I'm, I'm big on, I'm big on data. I still think the David story as an example, I tell a lot of, you know, underdog stories, whether it was Annie's or, you know, you name it. Most of the companies work with their underdogs. Volvo cars for all those years was still an underdog. You know, they're always outspent. So they always needed to connect that human interest story or that authentic story. Really, most of the time we're selling products, right? We're selling products and they need to taste great and they need to to have killer attributes. But that little extra authentic story goes, takes you the whole way. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. You can join our online community right now, where we're going further, faster together at community.evolvecpg.com. Join us. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Fred Haberman, founder and CEO of Freak Flag Organics, about business being a vehicle to communicate something you care deeply about and the lessons he's learned from 28 years of entrepreneurship. Thank you for having me, Gage. My name is Fred Haberman. I'm the CEO of and founder of Freak Flag Organics. I'm also the co-founder and CEO of Haberman Integrated Marketing Agency, whose mission is to tell the stories of pioneers who are making a difference in the world. Ooh, nice. I like that. It's, it's kind of what we're doing here with Evolve CPG, you know, telling the stories of awesome people who are kicking butt out there and making the world a better place. So thanks for coming on and kind of sharing some of your story with us. And we will dive into Freak Flag and, and geek out on that and how that all came to be and how it's going. But uh, since you also mentioned Haberman, I know you've got a background in marketing and communications. So can you talk to me a little bit about kind of your history within this space and in the kind of creative services? Sure. Somehow or another, and it's, it's shocking to me, the Haberman agency, it sounds like I'm talking in the third person, but Haberman, the agency, has been around for 28 years. My wife and I started it when we were 28 years old. So somehow what? or another, I'm still 56. Um, this is the magic year then. <laughs> yeah, it is. I didn't realize that. And I worked at a couple agencies. My wife worked in CPG. And we'd also spent a lot of time, I'll probably talk about experiential learning, at camps. And we even started a business in the former Soviet Union in Kazakhstan back in the early 90s. And with all those experiences, we realized that we really, really wanted to create an agency or an organization that could be a place where we could follow our passions, that hopefully we could build a business that revolved around the mission, which I shared earlier, to tell the stories of pioneers who are making a difference in the world. And it's that mission has remained the same. I define mission as the contribution you make in the world. And from the very beginning, we knew we wanted to do what at that time was called cause marketing. Since then, it's gone into sustainability, it's gone into 
B corporations. It's now called ESG in some respects, environmental sustainability and governance. But for us, it's always been, we really had an agency that has an agenda, quite frankly, and it's a fairly progressive agenda. So some people are going to really like us. Some people aren't going to like us as much. The Monsantos of the world aren't going to really like us. But the Organic Valleys, Annie's, Traditional Medicinals, these are the clients that we've had over the years. We actually started with Organic Valley from the, almost the very beginning, worked with them for 20 years, as well as some of these other companies you'd, you'd find at the co-ops. And then this company called Whole Foods started to take off. But I knew that I, as well as my wife, we really wanted to focus on individuals specifically that were growing brands or really wanted, once again, to do something different, but do something positive. So we discovered this company, Organic Valley, that I mentioned at this co-op, and they were a small company. And, you know, they, for me, there was an opportunity to take our communication skills, some of our organizational development skills, our grassroots marketing, almost hippie orientation, which, by the way, I think was a real boon to the organic food movement early on was that a lot of these folks came from the hippie grassroots civil rights movement and were able to leverage that for growth. And so that really helped us to then get some other clients. But I'm kind of going too far here already with the question. But for me, it's always about using communications, using and following the passion. Because once again, if, if you're passionate, uh, you have more depth in terms of resilience to hopefully be successful or at least make it make a difference because you're going to get beaten up a fair amount on that path to manifestation. Yeah, that's super true. Did you have any experience in communication before starting your own agency? Like, was this something you did working for other people for a while or you studied in school you know, or did it just kind of come natural? Yeah, for me, I worked for 30 months. I, that's the exact number of months I worked at a couple <laughs> agencies. That was my formal training. I think communications may have been, you know, you know, I look back now and I, I realize that it was probably in my DNA because my grandfather was chairman of the communications arts department at University of Wisconsin. And everyone in my family, on both sides of my family, are, are, happen to be in communications. And I, I'm pretty good at sales, but I'm also a good writer. So those two you know, I didn't want to just do sales and I didn't want to just be a journalist and communications was a nice place for me. But what really, you know, gave me the the chutzpah, I suppose, to start the business revolved around, I think I mentioned working at a camp, uh, Camp Manitowish uh, in northern Wisconsin, where experiential learning is really, and, you know, challenging yourself to go beyond what you think is possible really became a mantra for me. And that mantra of saying, hey, I can do this has really propelled me to start various businesses. And it's also gotten me in trouble. You know, there are things that are just sometimes aren't going to go your way because you don't know enough. But it does certainly help me to think that anything is possible. And so with not a ton of communications experience, you know, we put our shingle out there. And I kind of, you know, went with the the idea that if I have positive intention and I'm passionate about something and I have intellectual curiosity, I should be able to at least provide some value. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so... Uh, it makes sense. You know, so that's kind of what drove us. Yeah, some of the best creative business leaders I know say that you just say yes now and then figure it out later <laughs> because yeah. if you're resourceful and, you know, creative and, you know, 
intelligent enough, you'll you'll just figure it out, right? And um, I've also heard educators say, all you have to do is be one chapter ahead of the students, really. And so it's like, <laughs> as long as you know enough to get started and have a certain skill set and you're willing to invest the time in continually learning, then yeah, just take on projects and go learn while doing and, and you'll probably do better than most others and then you'll improve over time. I think that's a huge point. You know, I, you know, I say it a lot, you know, if you're not over your head, then something's wrong. Like I, there, every single thing that we're taking on today, as well as 10 years ago and 20 years ago, I probably, there was, there were a number of things I had never done before that I, I was nervous about or had to find somebody that had more domain experience. And that's, so it's the intellectual curiosity, not just to potentially figure it out for yourself, but more importantly, to find out somebody who does have the answer and hopefully um, create a relationship with that individual so that you can figure it out together. That's what makes, you know, hopefully a career exciting and interesting and motivating and inspiring. I mean, it's, once again, it's, this is cliche, but in the old days, we called it the learning organization. I don't know what they call it today, but, you know, how are you setting up an organization for continuous learning? And when you do that, it revolves around vision, mission, certainly understanding passion, but also meshing those with other team members in that, you know, authentic, transparent way, which creates a high performance team. And so that's a lot of what we try to do anyway, we attempt to do at the agency as well as at Freak Flag. And then CPG, the folks that are in CPG, they're listening, they know it more than almost anybody because as soon as you think that you've got pricing established or whatever your your product in the pipeline with your co-packer, you find out that there's a supply chain issue or a distributor has just said, hey, we're going to jack up the price due to gas prices. And you have to like immediately adapt your business model. And that it's very disconcerting and it takes a tremendous amount of resilience, but also requires, you know, once again, continuous openness and learning related to solving those problems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love that. It's, I always heard that college wasn't necessarily to learn skills. It was to learn how to think. And I feel like that's a big part of just being in business or, you know, being a creative professional or whatever is, is it's, you don't always have the answers. You just have to be an expert in finding the answers, right? Whether that's finding someone who is an expert and bringing them in and learning from them or figuring out the path, doing the research, et cetera. Like you, you just have to be open to not knowing and be comfortable with that space and then go and find out. And it's that curiosity that drives you to learn more that I think makes you either a powerful leader or a powerful creative or or also resilient because you're going to face a million things as an entrepreneur or as a creative or whatever where you get kind of a curveball and you don't know how to hit that one and you're just going to have to pivot and figure it out, right? But in the more, more you can do that, the more resilient you'll be throughout your career. It's certainly a beginner's mind. You know, it seems like it's, it's also anti-ego, quite frankly. Not anti-confidence, because I think you need, you need some confidence, as what you said earlier, related to openness and desire to learn and the fact that you believe that you can learn. But I do think that, you know, hiring people smarter, not worrying about where the idea comes from, and, but also asking clarifying questions because you don't understand something in a meeting, sometimes even three like curiosity. times. So you don't leave the meeting 
still not understanding, right? I mean, that, I think we certainly, that's, a, that's an evolution thing with career, right? I, certainly the first 10, 15 years, you're, I think you're far more worried about, am I coming off as dumb when in reality you're smart if you ask the question <laughs> a couple yeah. of times, right? Yeah, I just literally had that conversation with somebody where it was people often are afraid to ask questions for exactly that reason. It will expose their lack of knowledge in something, but I feel the exact same way. Like if you don't ask questions and just go away and then underperform, you're going to look dumb. But if you ask smart, ask smart or dumb questions in the meeting and you just have that confidence to ask it because you know you want to get it right, then that makes you look better in, in my opinion. Plus also just having that curiosity that creates all those questions in your mind and being brave enough to ask them is going to help you evolve in your own career on your own journey build more knowledge, et cetera. So whenever people ask me for advice for new people coming into the design world, I always say, just say, be curious because the more questions you have, the more answers you'll find. And the more answers you find, the more of an expert you'll become. Intellectual curiosity was for many, many years when I was, you know, in charge of most of the hiring at the agency, it was the number one point on the job description, intellectual curiosity, passion. I assume that they had some work experience. But as we were just discussing, I mean, and even at camp, the camp that I worked at, we could train you. We could give you the skills. And if you don't have the skills, I mean, once again, you're going to have a base level skill requirement for these jobs. But I always say the soft stuff is the hard stuff of business. I mean, and and it's all these other things that make for great teams and great successful businesses, right? Getting along with people, and all of the idiosyncrasies that you have to overcome and while at the same time truly understanding your own strengths and weaknesses, right? As ugly as they might be. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But also I feel like by understanding them, hopefully you also know that like a weakness isn't always a weakness. Sometimes it's a strength and sometimes a strength in the wrong application is actually a weakness, right? Because maybe a strength is your confidence and like your ability to walk into a room and, and lead that room. But sometimes that's a weakness because you should let other people speak up or you should be comfortable in silence, right? So it's kind of ebb and flow. So you just got to be have that awareness of yourself and know when to apply your skill sets and when to like step back and lean on others. I find, you know, I was just talking to my partner and president of the agency right now, you know, there's no doubt that, you know, a strength and a weakness of mine is, and I'm sure it's the same for most people that are hired, they're attempting to achieve, you know, certain things on an ongoing basis or are pleasers. Mine is that I, you know, I'm going to waste energy worrying about things I can't control right? It's pretty basic stuff, you know, whether it's, you know, turns or supply chain or how I'm going to talk to investors two months from now or a month from now when I don't have all the data in yet, you know, stealing trouble. Like, well, how am I going to answer this? Well, I don't have enough data. I need to just kind of calm it down, chill out, let it just unfold versus trying to hold it so tight. And, you know, giving energy away is energy control is, you know, some people just need to work out. Some people need to eat better, sleep better. You know, for me, it's, I don't have a problem working out. I do have a problem giving my energy away. 
And I'm sure most people have that problem that are listening to this. <laughs> it's yeah. like, um, you know, because you're pleasing, you're worrying. And that's been one that I, I've struggled with most of my career. Yeah. And I, I like that kind of note on not obsessing over things that you can't control because I, that's a good pivot into your kind of entrepreneurial history as well. Because I know you've had many uh, ventures, you know, we're talking about two of them here, but I know you've got some others that we can mention, but that is such a critical entrepreneurial skill, I believe, because if you're just constantly afraid of all the possible things that might happen and freaking out about protecting yourself against every single one of them, you're never going to move anywhere because like the whole, all of your work and being an entrepreneur is risk and you have to be willing to let some things go and say, you know what? <laughs> yes, another pandemic, another recession, another supply chain issue or whatever may very well come, but I can't necessarily control that. I will do my best to have contingency plans, but we're, we still have to move forward, you know? So don't worry about those things you can't control. Just focus on the things that you can control, set that contingency plan, try to build resilient supply chains and just move forward. And I think that's a skill that entrepreneurs maybe don't start out with, but you have to build it over time. The further along your business gets, the more you're going to be hit with obstacles and you have to just be willing to let some of those go in order to make progress. So with that said, You've had an entrepreneurial spirit for a long time, I think even since before Haberman. So where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from? You know, I mentioned it earlier. I think it it probably was there before I worked at a camp. You know, I just love, it's the camp. It's, I'll just start there. When I was 18, I was thrown into this. I was this, you know, like a lot of seniors in high school, kind of an irresponsible, happy-go-lucky guy. And then somehow or another, I ended up as a counselor at this camp and I was given five, uh, well, nine, but on the trail the, uh, near the boundary waters of Canada, northern Minnesota, five kids to be responsible for. And then I started getting leadership positions at a very young age. And But what struck me with all of it was that I loved the creative process. I loved the, the team building. I loved the, all that went into it, the idea of where are we going to go? How are we going to get there? Who's going to do what? Which is very similar to, you know, in a microcosm, what business is. And for me, I looked at, at starting businesses for the most part as ways to certainly create and adapt and continually create, which I love probably the most about it. But I also view it as a way to communicate a message that it's a vehicle for me to, to hopefully communicate something that I care deeply about. So it's a platform for some type of message. So when I started the U.S. Pond Hockey Championships, that was all about reminding people to be kids again. You know, we have 20,000 people or whatever that would show up from around the country and they're playing during, you know, outdoor hockey in, in Minnesota on a lake. And it's a reunion with your youth as well as with all your friends that you played outdoor hockey with when growing up or and you make new friends. So it's all about trying to remind people to play, to do unstructured play. That was the message with that. With aquaponics, it was all about we can use in a food desert, we can create something right here and we can the message there is is that we can grow it right here. We don't have to ship it from water-constrained areas, our produce from water-constrained areas like 
Arizona or California or Mexico, we can do it right here in town. And we can, and we, not only that, but we can feed people here with fresher produce. So I try to, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, but I try to have some kind of message with it. And so that provides even more creativity and depth, I would hope, to the overall venture and gives you a little more energy for when things are tough. Yeah, like you were saying, the passion before. But that's interesting, too, that that kind of entrepreneurial spirit has so much overlap with your communications instincts as well. Because it's all about kind of telling a story and, and creating space for that story to unfold, whether you're just doing like a campaign marketing you know, PR strategy for someone else or whether you're creating businesses for you, a lot of it is around kind of like spreading an idea, right? Spreading an idea. And that's why, you know, when you talk to, um, you know, for doing a campaign for a, a company, I almost always ask, you know, tell me about your founder. Tell me about your, your CEO. What is the passion? Forget about the company for a second. Just tell me about, let me talk to this person. What's the origin story? At the end of the day, you know, I started really as, you know, for the beginning of my career, part of it was organizational development, but the other was, you know, and, and some executive coaching, but it was also public relations, media relations. And if you look at the, the newspaper, other than the stats in the business section and the stats in the sports section, those are human interest stories, right? So-and-so started his company, blah, blah, blah. So-and-so, blah, blah, blah. Was inspired by so-and-so. And that's in some respects, that's really what Haberman does. And that's what I think good agencies do is they're really good at telling human interest stories. You need, well, what are, tell me the metrics on X, Y, and Z. Tell me the metrics on that. Those are key. But what drives a lot of that is the human interest story and how it's authentic, of course, and, and how you're capturing that and meeting other people with that. So to me, the good news is, is that we're human beings. Hey, hallelujah. And human beings want to connect with other human beings. And that specific need or interest or desire is not going to go away. So as much as you go into data and so on and so forth, which I'm, I'm big on, I'm big on data. I still think the David story, as an example, I tell a lot of, you know, underdog stories, whether it was Annie's or, you know, you name it. Most of the companies we work with are underdogs. Volvo Cars, for all those years, was still an underdog. You know, they're always outspent. So they always needed to connect that human interest story or that authentic story. Really, most of the time, we're selling products, right? We're selling products, and they need to taste great, and they need to, to have killer attributes. But that little extra authentic story goes, takes you the whole way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, there's lots of data that shows that people buy for emotional reasons more than logical reasons, right? So for sure, you can kind of try to communicate all your tech specs or your product attributes or whatever else, but it's that emotional connection, whether it's that connection to the brand, connection to the founders, connection to the purpose, connection to the way the product makes you feel, the way or the connection to your friends who use the product and recommend it. It's usually some sort of emotional-based reason that you buy in the end at the end of the day so that makes a lot of sense with that said speaking of like telling stories and spreading ideas and all that kind of stuff what is the story behind freak flag like you were already kind of running at least one business if not multiple why start another one and why this one you know so i usually only take one on beyond haberman and so urban organics that aquaponics company had been sold so i really wanted to 
go out and try CPG, you know, and I will say that of all the businesses that I've been involved with, this is by far the hardest. This one has been really, really hard. And it's interesting to be somebody who's been involved in food on the marketing side for so many years and thinking that I knew what I was doing. I really, really didn't know what I was doing. I keep learning and I keep getting beaten up. I do have some successes along the way, which I'm excited about, but for the most part, it's been really hard. And for all those people in CPG, they're kind of laughing and saying, yep, I got it. But what inspired it, you know, once again, the message, I want, first of all, I love, I say zizzers as, that's out of Dr. Seuss, a zizzers as, as, I like to go in the kitchen and I like to, I look at a recipe and then immediately I'm off putting my own favorite ingredients, usually garlic and basil and some other things. But I wanted a message to be around being yourself in the world and in the kitchen. And Freak Flag, to me, you know, everyone, I want people to be themselves. I mean, that's the message, basically. And every day, you have an opportunity, if you're fortunate enough to cook for yourself or to have a kitchen, you have an opportunity to be creative. And so, you know, I hope that that there's a reminder there each time you see our products or hopefully buy our products. So I wanted to create a self-expression brand. With that said, I will say that it's been, and I'm in marketing, right? It's really difficult to get the brand out when you are so trade focused on just building velocities, building retail relationships. It's just, it takes a lot more time. You know, these businesses, other than these unicorns, you know, they're at least, they take at least seven to 10 years of building slowly brick by brick. And then the brand, the brand is there, but it, it emerges unless you get a celebrity involved, which you see a lot of today, or you have someone involved very early on, which still, that's a very, very small percentage of the businesses out there. You know, most of these businesses, like if you go to Expo West and you go to the new business hall or whatever it's called today, Expo Hall or whatever, there's a sea of them, right? And that's just those that even know about Expo, let alone all the companies that are, that are at the farmer's markets. So, you know, for me, it's really helped me recognize the power and importance of the trade. And more importantly, the specific importance around integrating the trade and the consumer. One of the things that's really messed up, so messed up that I didn't truly understand was that we put the trade marketing above the line, above the SGNA line, and then we have the, the advertising and the, and the consumer marketing below the line. It's like, who did that? Why aren't we looking at this holistically since most of your money is going to trade? You know, like if you're a $100 million company, you're going to spend 20 plus percent, sometimes 30, but let's say 20% of your money, 20 million bucks on trade, discounts, promotions, and maybe $5 million, $10 million max probably on consumer marketing. So let's start looking at how these things can work together. And sometimes those functions are not led by the same person. So to me, the ultimate learning, there are lots of learnings. One is the sales and marketing person should be the same person. The head of sales and marketing should be the same person. Now, it's really hard to find that person, extremely difficult. But to me, 
that integration has to happen. If sales and marketing, like check this out. I've talked to some businesses where the, the person who's head of the Amazon is the salesperson. They call them a sales broker. Yeah, interesting. Isn't it? Yeah, I was actually just talking to a client who said that they believed that marketing and logistics also need to be kind of overseen by the same person or be in close communication because brand and marketing and it's all about the experience. So whether it's, you know, your product getting there on time or in good shape or refund policies or any of those kind of logistic, more kind of back to the house things are just as important for your brand as what ad you're placing or anything else like that. So, so I, I hear you, it all just needs to be integrated, but the bigger your business gets, the harder it is to have, you know, yeah. one person overseeing everything, which is why departments get so siloed. But then when departments get too siloed, okay. bad decisions get yeah, made yeah, or, or things aren't integrated to where you like push out a promotion about this product, but then the logistics people didn't tell you they're having supply chain issues or they just ran out of product or, you know, you get in some of those hiccups. It's an unbelievable communications challenge. These CPG businesses are just remarkably complex and it's only getting more and more complex, right? With, you know, pre-COVID, how many, you know, what percentage of, of sales occurred online, right? In fact, as an agency, we saw lots of PEs pushing and VCs putting a lot of money into these D2C sites only to, to lose millions and millions of dollars. And as we know now, those D2C sites are really, really important to food companies, primarily to understand your consumer. Like, who the heck is buying my product? And the only way you can get that insight, not the only way, but one of the main, biggest ways you can do it is through your own site. Because you, know, you get the Whole Foods data, you get the Sprouts data, and it spins data, basically. It's, it's turned data. And so, you know, you have all that complexity with that, and then you have the supply chains, and then you have the, like, on our pesto, our vegan kale pesto, we get our sunflower oil from the Ukraine. Like a lot of people. World events, world events all of a sudden can throw up. Just like we were talking about before, unexpected things pop up that you can't control, but now all of a sudden, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. And so, it, I've never been in a business that has been so instantly affected by world events or macro events, whether it's a war, COVID, you know, our co-packers can't find people to work in their manufacturing facilities. Shipping, you know, in you know, gas prices obviously affect distribution and retailer pricing that you don't have control over. You know, literally, we you know went to a retailer and we're launching a product at two ninety nine, and then we find out it's on shelf for four ninety nine without knowing. And you're kind of like, what the, you know? So it's you know, it's pretty mind bending how how complicated it is and how you have to, you know, have these team meetings all the time to try to communicate with each other. Yeah. And speaking of how complicated it is, I know you had experience in supporting CPG brands through marketing, storytelling, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. But when you started Freak Flag, did you bring in your own support for the things that you weren't already familiar with? Like, did you bring in experts in supply chain or experts in operations Definitely. or Absolutely. logistics or whatever? And like, was there, was that on like a yeah. partner level or did you just like hire kind of support staff or both contractors um, or staff? Yeah. So we have a sales team that we outsourced and we have brokers that we outsource. So, you know, we probably have 10 
sales or seven seven to ten sales folks around the United States. We have certainly we, I hired somebody in house to just handle production and operations. So yes, you're hiring either internally, although you want to have your team. I would suggest as small as possible internally, and then because you have to move quickly, you want to move quickly. Depending upon your model, our model was let's move quickly on distribution, some other things. But we basically have outsourced most of the work that's required other than three full-time people, four full-time people. One thing I've heard is that people experience in a certain field, like maybe they've launched and grown a CPG brand, they're less likely to launch another one afterwards because they know too much now and know how hard it is, for example. Um, Do you feel like to some degree, your naivete walking into growing your own brand was the reason you like launched it or like now that you've kind of had your hands in there and know it's the most complicated kind of business you've run, would you do it again? Probably not to your point, although it'd be a shame because, you know, I would say I'm leaving some chance that I would do it again. Uh, We'll see, you know, we've got a long way to go with Freak Flag, but it's a really powerful question because if, you know, we're just, I would say my knee jerk reaction is, you know, right now I wouldn't do it. But the reason why I said it would be a shame is because you've learned so much, right? But even though you've learned so much and you know where not to stub your toe a second time, it's a very Byzantine system that is overwhelming, particularly for for any size brand. But let's just say a small brand, sub $10 million, sub $20 million, but particularly $10 million, $5 million, because a lot of it is about survival, actually. If you can get through this five to seven years, because you're just a small little flea that is not doesn't have a lot of leverage in a system that is controlled by very very large corporations. The distributors, you know, there's like only a handful of distributors that control it. The system is set up in a way that it's it's just not fair, quite frankly. Yeah, um, most of distrib- them are. Yeah. You know, distributors, you do a trade spend and you get many invoices back and you have to then try to parse through what were we charged for? Like, it's not clear. Do you know what I mean? So it's a Byzantine system that you have to actually hire someone to go through your invoices, which we started to do just to make sense of them. It's, It's very different than the agency world where I'm going to bill you X amount per hour and then you're going to pay me and it's very clear. And then we paid X amount for advertising and this. And it's like, okay, great. That's the deal. Versus getting like hundreds and hundreds of invoices based on say a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar transaction through lots and lots of stores and through lots of scans. And it's very, very complex. And that's what makes you say, wow, I don't think I can do this again. Or if you did do it again, maybe you would simplify as much as possible. That's my theory, by which I mean, I see some experienced entrepreneurs go back into the business again, but either they do like more or less the same exact thing they did before um, once their non-compete is over after selling their business, like um, Seth with uh, Honest Tea right now, That since he's kind of relaunching it since Coca-Cola shut it down. But anyway... You either go back in the same business because it'll be easier because you already have the connections, you know how to do it, you know how to formulate it, you know how to sell it, you know what consumers care about, et cetera, or you simplify and you like find a product that is like 10 times easier to make or distribute or whatever, and you just go the easy path. 
I say all those things. My guess is, you know, I really want Freak Flag to, to win and be successful. So there's a long way to go with that. But I think probably what will happen is if, you know, God forbid something happens to Freak Flag, I'd take a year off and I'd be back at it again because I can't help it. But <laughs> yeah. the amount of learning that I've accumulated that anyone would accumulate in, in three years is mind bending. I really wish I knew back then what I know today. Like I would have started the, our D2C site earlier. I would have, I wouldn't have listened to the buyers so much in dictating. You know, part of it is you get kind of seduced by a buyer who says, I'll take you in if you do X versus Y and you do X. And then now you're off, a, you're off brand just enough. That's no longer your business. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Now it's easy yeah. for me to say that, but here you are talking to a kick-ass chain that has several hundred stores and you're like, God, I sure would be nice to have that. You know, I don't want to upset this buyer. You know, I don't want to. And you're in this really interesting, I mean, the buyers have, as we all know, a tremendous amount of power and I, I respect them. But part of it is, you know, being, and people are laughing probably, if anyone's listening to this, they're laughing because they've experienced that, you know, where it's like, boy, you got, you try to stay true to your brand but you, and you don't want to upset anybody that could. But then that Costco it. contract <laughs> looks really good, you know. You know what I mean? Something like that, yeah. And Absolutely. so you're, you're, yeah, we see it all the time. Yeah, and little things too. And you're in this business. The power of packaging, you know, the hardest part of the whole thing is that last six to twenty-four inches, whatever it is, when someone grabs and puts it in their cart, and. How the heck do you arrest at shelf? You know, I used to, you know, I'm not classically trained. You know, I'm not a master's in business guy. Like I majored in history. And boy, those four Ps, sure, I really get those now. I mean, the four Ps organized my brain. I didn't truly get the four Ps. I think there's like seven now that I have in my brain. But but the whole pricing, promotion, product, placement, packaging, I can add some Ps. I mean, that organizes my thinking more than anything else when I'm going into a meeting because it's like, okay, how are we doing on this? How are we doing on that? Is in some respects a genius that old school organiz organizing is really, really helpful. Or if you talk to Seth Godin about it, he thinks those are out of date. But, you know, like to your point, yeah, I, even I, just I, like I keeping them in your mind – like makes sense. But I think sometimes those four P's were more like commodity based. It's like, of course, if your price and your placement are locked in and you're the cheapest thing and everyone can find it everywhere. Great. You're going to sell a gabillion. But like in, in today's market of like challenger brands who have more of a story to tell or a mission behind them, you're not going to be optimized for price. You're probably not going to be optimized for placement. So it becomes more of the the product and the promotion, right? You've got to nail those two because you don't have the other ones. But, but so I liked keeping it in my mind as a framework, but yeah, I can see Seth Godin's point that sometimes it's less relevant. I'm the biggest mission guy you'll probably ever meet. And maybe it's because I'm so mission driven that I have embraced these P's because they force you to think mechanically and functionally around and it also helps you meet other people that look just because you're talking about price doesn't mean you're going to lower your price you have to look at price keeping in mind yeah it's just reminding you like well let's look at what's the price on this thing what's our promotion well our promotion is about giving x amount of money to x y and z or discount and this is the message 
This doesn't have to be anti-mission or anti, you know, whatever it is. I'm just saying that this is an organizational platform that's super, super powerful. And I obviously disagree. No, with I, I, I agree. I, I use it all the time in terms of just like a checks and balance. Like, are we considering all these things for sure? But I, I forget what Seth what Seth's P's are, but he's just got like the the modern marketing P's that are more relevant in today's world or something like it's, that. It's the I same can't remember thing what like they are. Saying, <laughs> so. It's like the same thing I was thinking about with cause marketing versus ESG. I kind of roll my eyes through each iteration because it's really the same thing over and over again. How are we making yeah, a difference? Yeah, we just find How different words to explain it. <laughs> regenerative ag, sustainable ag. Let's just be kind of the earth and not throw a bunch of pesticides on it. <laughs> yeah, like, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Or in the way I like to tell it is, let's just go back to doing things the way we used to do it for thousands of years or whatever before we fucked everything up. <laughs> well, it's like, I can't remember who said it, but you know, it's like, what did your great grandma or grandma call organic food? Yeah, you know, totally. It's kind of like the industrial revolution, the assembly line and all that big ag came from that. Anyway, we could talk about all that stuff. At this, at yeah. Interestingly, you can, you can do these frameworks, you can do these P's, you can do all that stuff at the same time. Pretty much after about 20 minutes of debating it, you realize that you're talking about the same thing. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, you know, we, we've gotten this far into this chat, uh, just geeking out on all things business and design communications. But I'm realizing that we haven't dug into your products uh, that much yet. So Freak Flag, you know, you've got these bone broths, you've got pestos, you've got Mac and Freak. How did you come up with this product mix? Like the point was to get creative in the kitchen, right? And for people to express themselves. So why these products in particular? Yeah, so all those products are platform products. They're great on their own, but they can be used to to amp something up. So, and they have different attributes. The pestos, once again, are you can just put them on a cracker, or you can you can make a, a pasta out of them. And that's actually the kale pesto is actually our number one product. I think you know, a it tastes great, but it's also the entire line is all vegan, and so it it I think it's hitting a number of key marks even the mac and cheese tastes great but once again i was hoping that it would be more of a platform that people would add more to it i think that you know the jury's still out as to whether or not they're doing that they because it is a great product you know on its own certainly with the broths we see both we see people using it to up the ante with how they're cooking but they taste great on their own and and some people are using it really as a protein uh, fix for their diets like we'll get Probably like a lot of sites, we'll get someone ordering 14 broths. And my guess is, is that they're using those for, you know, for protein. Interesting. So did you land on some of those products because these are products that you use all the time or are you like, yeah, like so making it's funny. on your own? Totally. Yes. Right on. So like when I go to Colorado and, and just go like this winter when I would just get in my car and go powder hunting. I would throw a bunch of broths and pestos and mac and cheese and just go out and <laughs> nice. go to Preston Butte or wherever it was, you know, for three nights with my guitar and my skis and just, and I loved it. It was just. So these I, were I, the Freaky Fred formula. So that makes sense why, yeah, you, why yeah. you saw them. So that was fun. But yeah, a lot of the inspiration comes from just the way that me and my team, I'd say the way I like to live my life and the way that the products that I use to, to hopefully improve the way that I cook. 
those are the real, like I said, they're bases that can be improved upon or eaten on their own. Nice. So we've talked a lot about, I think, a lot of the challenges of CPG being such a complex business and like, you know, how much money goes towards trade and consumer and supply chain issues and all that kind of stuff. So let's talk a little bit more about like some of the the wins or or along your journey. So, you know, what have you been kind of most proud of to date so far? I'm super proud of the kale pesto. I'm super proud of the coconut chicken. I'm super proud of my team. I love my team. I'd say that interestingly, it goes back to the human side of this thing. I really, really am so grateful that I get to work with the people that that are just with me on this journey. They're positive problem solvers and they lift me up. And I'm really proud of being able to create these products during COVID. It's been really difficult or change packaging formats or... I'm really proud of the distribution that we've been able to get. Once again, I mean, as much as you might poo-poo CPG, it's you get to manifest something, you know, out of an idea and you get to eat it and you get satisfaction from it. It's There's something material. Being in the consulting world for so many years, it's nice to have something that you you can see and say, this is awesome. I love this. This is killer. And then to have somebody say, I really love this is just, it's a beautiful thing, man. It's great, you know? And I'm proud of just being able to to create a, a company that has the values that I really believe in, which is, you know, organic is table stakes for me. It has been for many years. So to have a product line that is organic, but also hopefully reminds people to be themselves and taste great, I'm really proud of that. That's really cool. And how many years has the brand been around so far? And kind of what's the trajectory like? Um, Nationally so for far? about two and a half years. Um, so we're in Whole Foods, we're in Sprouts, we're in Kroger's top banners like King Supers and and then some, some higher end stores around the country, some co-ops. I'm very much a co-op rat. So, you know, but you can't, if you want to grow a national business, you can't just do it on co-ops. They're not, they're, you need more. <laughs> In Minnesota, Minneapolis, we've got a great co-op community. So, you know, that's where I shop for most of my stuff. But Whole Foods, Sprouts, Kroger, that's where you can find our products. And, you know, overall, they've been great. They've been great to work with. And I'm really happy that that we're in those stores. In fact, most of the people that I've been working with have been great across the board. And and we laugh about the complexities and the difficulties. But for the most part, I've, I've had a good experience with everybody. That's great. Yeah, I feel like as far as I've seen in this industry, people are usually pretty collaborative and welcoming and wanting to support each other. So it is healthy in that regard, at least. I think it's getting a little more more and more competitive as more venture capital, more whatever outside business people come into the space. But the core community, I think, is pretty supportive of one another. That's been the best thing with the um, over the years is that I, I – you know, when you go to Expo, and I've been going for 20-some-odd years, it's really a reunion. Of, you know, I the friendships that have formed with people of all ages um, now, it's really a precious thing, you know, because once again, you're around people that have passion, but, but also there seems to be a, a sharing and people wanting to give a helpful hand, and, and I'm proud to be a part of that. I really am thankful and grateful to all the people that that have helped me and and you want to pass that you want to you want to do that for others 
And I've really, that's all like being in Boulder and, and being in the San Francisco area and other areas, you know, the same cities come up all the time, Seattle, Portland, Austin, so on. <laughs> yeah. These are communities that, you know, in the food world, particularly in the small to midsize, these are people that are helping each other. And that's a really wonderful thing. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, me too. I love working in spaces like the design world where we're all kind of wanting to make the world better in some way. And we're all there to support each other and celebrate each other's wins. But then also my other space of this like natural organic mission driven yeah. uh, food space, it's, it's very much the same thing as well. And pe- even people who, you know, successfully exit and leave the industry or could have left the industry like Mike Fata, they just stick around and end up being like an advisor to a bunch of other brands. Uh, he was from Manitoba Harvest, but now he's like, I think got like 10 brands in his portfolio that he's investing in or helping with growth strategy or just mentoring and stuff. So it is just kind of the space where a lot of people who are super passionate about it gravitate towards it. And then, like you said, it becomes this like tight knit community of people supporting each other, which is, which is really nice to be part of. It feels more like a snowboarding community where people are rooting for each other after they they do their run, you know? Um, And like I said, I mean, that, it's been going on for well over a quarter century. You know, we we would do these lifestyles of health and sustainability conferences. Um, the old Lojas, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in Boulder at the St. Julian or whatever for years and all the way to Expo West and the other shows. And, you know, you would end up helping each other, talking about it. That's still going on. It's great. I just love it. And I want it always to be that way. Makes sense. Okay, so let's like talk about the future a little bit. What do you feel like is the future for Freak Flag, and how do you plan on like measuring success along that journey? You know, that's a big question, and certainly we spend a lot of time on that. You know, the, the short answer is is to you know we in the short term we we really need to dial up and understand exactly who our audience is. As a smaller brand, it's it's, and I'm hoping to do that through a, our D 2 C site. So that's a big which we just launched. So that's a big one. I would say success for us is it'll be years from now. (laughs) It'll be at least two to three years from now. And you can be measured certainly, and it should be measured at some level financially. So we have some financial milestones that we we really need to hit. While at the same time, I'm really focused in on, of course, like everybody, velocities and how we increase those velocities. But more importantly for me right now, it's how do I build this tribe? How do I continue to grow an audience that we know about and can support and interact with? And that's really a big need for us because we've been focusing a lot on the operational side of getting products to market and into bricks and mortar. I'm very interested in how we can grow the D to C side of our business and understand what the growth capacity might be in that particular sphere and what the product mix might be. So I probably didn't give you a very clear, specific financial answer, but we need to start seeing some some really good growth in the next couple of years. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I like to just talk about how success is measured because it's all relevant to whatever your goals are, right? And some people have goals to, I, I just want to grow to $100 million. And some people want to be in every store across the country and some people want to just lower their price point so they can be accessible and someone like you said build more of a community and and kind of 
because uh, you started this not because you believe pesto is the best food in the world and everyone should be eating pesto. You started this because you wanted people to be more creative in the kitchen, right? So you focus more on the problem than the solution. So, you know, building a tribe, so to speak, around that problem of people who are looking to get more creative in the kitchen means you've got a lot of space to play. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, we have a good innovation pipeline to serve that need and to expand into some places that hopefully people will resonate with. So I'm excited about that. And I'm excited to, to, to put more money specifically behind consumer brand marketing versus more of the trade promotional side, although it's required. You got to do it because you got to, you know, it's been a challenging environment for sampling, as you know. And so one of the best ways to do it is to, at some level, provide some deals. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So to wrap up, you've come from a unique kind of mix of background being kind of a something of a serial entrepreneur, but also kind of supporting brands in the CPG space through kind of marketing communications, but also you have your own <laughs> CPG brand that you've been growing. So this will be interesting to hear, but what would you say is your top advice that you would give to others kind of following your footsteps, whether that's as a marketer, a storyteller, or an entrepreneur? Well, I always, you know, when I ask the question, well, what advice would you give as an entrepreneur? I, and it's the same thing I've been saying all along. You know, you got to follow your passion. There's so many points of advice, you know, and then when you start to get successful, people start asking you, hey, can I invest? And it's really flattering. And you want to spend as much time, actually more time interviewing investors and seeing who fits with your personality and not just not just the skill sets that you're looking for, but people that you're going to end up talking to and spending time, a lot of time with that will get you. You know, there's a lot of money out there. So don't think that it's scarce. There's a tremendous amount of money. So you want to try to find the right group of people. We've got a great group of investors. I've been in businesses and I'm on the, you know, in some other businesses that where they don't do that right away and you got to keep cleaning it up. So that's a massive, massive point. I would say certainly the passion investors. And then, you know, the same old cliche stuff I always say is, you know, hire smarter <laughs> than you. But as always, you know, you're going to be working really hard. So find people that have that equal amount of passion and know that this is a seven to 10 year game. The people you're reading about, a lot of them will say, well, that was a 20, that was a, boy, that was an overnight success. And they'll say that was a 20 year overnight success. So you got to know <laughs> yeah. that what you read about sometimes are those stories, but also those unicorns, they are unicorns. I mean, they're very, but even very the unicorns are probably more like five to 10 years, not necessarily one yeah. year or two year. <laughs> you know? and, and I think that the people that go in it just to make money, that's not the passion I'm talking about. You're following the wrong play. And I say that because if you follow the passion, the money's going to come. If you just follow the money, maybe it'll come. It's kind of my view on it. It's an anti But also there's probably a lot easier ways to make money. Oh, for sure. Go <laughs> try to run and grow a CPG brand, right? Look, if I wanted to make a lot more money, I would have chosen a different career. I mean, I do okay. So I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that there are other ways to make a lot of money. This is a beautiful thing where you get to create stuff. You know, the other thing I, I find out is that people say, well, I want to go start a food company. And they you got to have your eyes wide open on, on all of these things. And can it be commercialized? You know, something that's made in your kitchen or 
is like I literally thought that I could go and get a bunch of I wanted to have these organic local farmers grow our product, but the reality is I need IQF frozen ingredients so they all show up at the same time. I mean, just naive stuff like that. That I had this beautiful idyllic vision, and now you know it's all for the most part. You know, it's all organic, but it it has to, it a lot of it's frozen because it has to show up at the same time. It's not so anyway. And the other piece is like, what is the need state of the audience? Like, what are you really going? What tribes are you truly trying to to go after? You know, how does your passion meet with other fanatic groups? That to me is like almost everything. Yeah, that to me is kind of core to the building a brand, right? Because the brand these days probably stands for something more than we saw an opportunity to make money. And if it does, it can't just be the founder's passion and nobody else cares. <laughs> You've got to have something that the brand slash founders or whatever are passionate about and care about, but it also has to connect in some relevant, authentic, meaningful way to the people you're trying to help or to the people who need to like support you financially by buying your products. Cause if not, <laughs> then it's not going to go anywhere. So finding that kind of building that bridge between the brand's purpose and your customer's purpose or whatever is, is the best way to kind of scale. And starting small, starting yeah. like starting in your hometown, starting with the, you know, it's a classic example of farmer's market, seeing if it works. That's what we did. Seeing if people like it, go to like three to five, 10 stores, build it slowly. I would have a D2C site almost right away. Even if it's only two, three products, Start learning, think yeah. you're going to make a ton of money on it. It's really, that is your market research loop. That is where you get to know your the people that love your brand or a new product they don't like. You can learn from them and you can, I just can't emphasize that enough. That's something that we've been late to the game on. And like I said, I wish we would have done it earlier. I mean, it, it's, I hear that it's like getting a contract with Target or Costco or Whole Foods or whatever is just so exciting. Whereas <laughs> growing your own D2C, D2C is just a slog, you know, it's like a lot of work. You got to build it. You got to set it up right. You got to promote it. You got to support it. You got to be therefore sending emails, working on SEO. Like there's a lot of stuff behind right. there that's not quite as exciting as that big <laughs> 700 store contract well, the, or the, something. The, so the multi the multi hundred store contract is be careful what you ask for. And the thing is, it it, it okay. So let's say you're you just raised one point five million dollars, two million dollars, right? And well, that's nothing, man. I mean, it's nothing. Yeah. It's like what two weeks? Like, if we if we spend twenty <laughs> minutes, we could show you how all that money is going to disappear. But think about it this way: that money. There's five hundred some odd Whole Foods stores, right? And we could use any retailer; it doesn't matter. So now you're a national brand. How is that money going to support five hundred different stores? How is that going to happen? It's not. Yeah, it's not. Exactly. Particularly when yeah. you're, particularly when you're, you only have two to three. Let's say three, you got to go produce. First of all, that two million bucks, most of, most of that's going to be spent on production. It's going to be spent on promos. It's going to be spent on this thing called slotting fees, because they're going to require you to give a case of your product for free per skew per store. So pretty soon you're left with like hardly anything, and now you're at Whole Foods. So Whole Foods will be there for you. You know, that, that's the patient side. Like 
Whole Foods will be there for you or whoever it is. If you show good numbers through the micro experiments that you're creating and boy, do I believe in that now? <laughs> oh my gosh. Do I yeah, believe totally. in that? Well, I feel like, like that was I, one of the things I picked up from the ramping your brand book. That's uh, exactly it. Dr. James Richardson is, is that a lot of people just grow too fast, right? You, you get enticed by these big national accounts too early. You don't have the funding, you don't have the logistics or supply chain figured out, you know, et cetera. And then it kills you. But if you can start small and local with, you know, fewer SKUs and in a smaller market that you can really support and crush and get all that early feedback, then you can expand a little bit more. Then you expand a little bit more and you just kind of like take your time to get to the space you want to be so that you, learn a lot along the way, build that brand, get good numbers, and then you'll be ready to scale because you'll know your business and your customers so much more intimately. It's super challenging because the system doesn't support that. The system supports, it's just like Wall Street, you know, it supports go-go growth. And so you, you, as soon as you get investors, what do investors really care about? At the end of the day, what do investors really care about? Think of it this way. The CPG person that we're talking about or the entrepreneur has, let's say, potentially a 401k or has some kind of, you're an investor, even though you say, I'm not an investor. Yeah, you are. You have your own personal money. What do you want as an investor? You want a return on investment, right? You want a return. And by the way, they're your most important audience in some respects. So you got to remember that, you know, hey, what have you done? You know, how are we doing? You know, they're going to, how are you doing? How are you doing? What's the, are we getting a return? And so they're going to push you to get more stores. That goes back to like what you were saying is you got to be careful who you're bringing on early with investors. Like, are they aligned not only with your brand, but are they aligned with your trajectory, right? Because you bring in that, you bring in that five year kind of mindset investor. They're going to want you to go from wherever you are now to a hundred million in five years. And that could destroy you along the way, or maybe it'll luckily all work out. But well, if you find they're, they're an investor that's yeah. more on a 20 or a hundred year path, then you're good to go. Well, the other thing is, is that the investors, you know, I'm talking mostly about venture capitalists. They've raised, let's say 150 to 300 to $400 million in a venture fund, right? So they have this money burning a hole in their pocket, chasing deals, right? And what you do is you get a tremendous amount of email inflow. Hey, we're interested. We're interested. We're interested. We're interested. Knowing that they'll only get three deals that will really pan out of the 10 that they invest in or seven that they invest in. So, you know, they're going to be pushing you. And anyway, we could talk about this forever. It's just that the system, if you can, the key is the crazy thing is you're trying to actually put the reins on all of this. And (laughs) it's the ramping your brand, which you just mentioned is I wish I would have read that earlier than I did. And it was referred to me by the guy that's actually on the John Foraker. He said, that talks about D to C, you know, getting to know your audience. It talks about incremental growth. Talks about It's a really smart way to grow a business. And I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's see, these are the things that once you've been in business for a long time, now you know this and maybe <laughs> diving back in for a second go at it. Oh, you know, makes, I'm going to do it sense. until I drop. Yeah. Who's kidding whom? <laughs> Yeah. Nice. Gage, it was great talking with you. Hopefully something yeah. of interest has come through with this. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, we could obviously continue chatting forever, but I know we need to cut it off. So thanks for your time. Thanks for flying your freak flag and doing what you do and kind of paving the way for others to kind of pursue their passions and interests and, you know, for planning a flag for what's important to you, like organic. I truly appreciate that. And I'm sure everyone who works with you and the fans of your products appreciate it too. So thanks for carving out some time to come chat with us and share your story. Gage, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing in the world. It's great. I look forward to hanging with you soon. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Fred or Freak Flag, go to freakflagorganics.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. Dot com.